check out the new series of the Ave Explorers podcast, The Mass, where host Katie Prejean McGrady and special guests examine the origin and parts of the sacred liturgy, why it's important for Catholics to attend Mass each week, and how to better prepare for it. Subscribe to Ave Explorers, The Mass, on your favorite podcast app, or sign up for all of the free content in the series at AveMariaPress.com or by following Ave Maria Press on social media. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Russia is ramping up its attacks on Ukraine with a barrage of new missile strikes across the country. The next Russian offensive has reportedly begun in Ukraine. So this week, we're taking a look at the role the Vatican hopes to play in advocating peace and what it can realistically do. In his Easter Sunday address, Pope Francis has urged world leaders to hear the calls for peace in what he described as an Easter of war. In the first part of this episode, we'll look at how the war came up in the Vatican's Holy Week ceremonies. Then we'll turn to the diplomatic angle and what considerations the Vatican has to take into account when dealing with Russia and Ukraine. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning and happy Easter from New Orleans, Jerry. Happy Easter to you, Colleen, and from Rome, where many, many tourists have come back, many pilgrims. Yes, the crowds were huge this past weekend. Absolutely, yes. We've not seen it for two years. Elizabeth arrived home on Holy Thursday evening. Her paper has told her she's got a rest and then she will return to the war. All right. Well, I hope you're enjoying having her home. Absolutely. It's been great. Leading up to this most holy of days, Pope Francis has used his spotlight to bring attention to the war in Ukraine having a Russian and Ukrainian carry the cross together on Good Friday, kissing the Ukrainian flag from a devastated Bucha. All right, so last week on the show, you and I ran through the Pope's Holy Week schedule, and we focused mostly on the Pope's mobility challenges, right? He's been having some difficulty with his knee. We still don't know exactly what's up, but he's having a hard time staying standing for long periods of time. So this week, I wanted to run through Holy Week looking at how the war in Ukraine was addressed. But before we do that, how was the Pope looking throughout Holy Week? Well, he was obviously enjoying being back with the crowds. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think everybody was astounded that on Holy Thursday, he went to a prison about 50 miles north of Rome and went down on his Mm -hmm. knees to wash the feet of 12 prisoners. Yeah, it's kind of a double surprise that he was able to travel and that he was able to kneel down. Well, that he was able to travel. I mean, we've been to Malta with him recently, so that's not so much the problem. Mm -hmm. But that he was actually able to go down on his knees, nobody had anticipated this. Mm -hmm. Then on Good Friday, he was looking down on the Colosseum Mm -hmm. for the Way of the Cross, and he sat throughout the ceremony, and this is fairly normal. The other thing on Good Friday was, and you raised this last week, whether the Pope would do a full prostration at the beginning of the Good Friday service. So what happened there? Well, he stood in silence 
uh, silent prayer reflection. And indeed, it was very moving just to watch him there in, in silence, uh, standing. In past years, he has prostrated himself. But if you think around the world, somebody said to me, many, many bishops in many dioceses around the world uh, do not prostrate themselves because of various physical difficulties they may have. I, I think what, what was important was the, this moment of silent prayer, and it was very moving, I think, to just watch that. Yeah, it can certainly be just as prayerful whether the Pope is standing or lying face down. What about on Holy Saturday? I saw that the Pope was scheduled to preside over the Easter Vigil, but he didn't end up doing that. So what did he look like on Saturday? Well, obviously it was a decision that he took. He knew that on Sunday he, he wanted to preside at the Mass. There was more than 100,000 people at the Mass in St. Peter's Square. He also wanted to deliver the Urbi et Orbi message to the city of Rome, Urbi, and to the world, Orbi. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think he calculated that standing throughout the vigil service was perhaps taxing his energy too much. And so he, he decided mm -hmm. that he would not preside. He would sit, he delivered the homily, and he baptized the seven mm -hmm. catechumens at the part of the Mass where this mm -hmm. is normal. I think it was a calculated decision by him to enable him to have energy the next day. Yeah, so the next question is, did that pay off? Did he have good energy the next day? Yes, he, he celebrated the Mass normally. Then he went on the Pope Mobile around the square. There were lots of people and people were delighted. It, mm -hmm. And I think maybe his decision on, I, I'm speculating here, his decision on Saturday evening at the vigil to not preside in the basilica. You had less than 4,000 people, I think, half the basilica, because we're still observing some COVID regulations. And so he, he probably decided, you know, a lot of these were more privileged people. They had tickets. They were the ambassadors. There was the cardinals, the archbishops, the bishops, etc., the clergy. He probably felt, I will keep my energy for the people. I, this is how I, I read it. it I, I may be totally wrong, but it's my interpretation. <laughs> it sounds pretty typically Francis. Yes. And it, it was really a very joyful situation on the Sunday. You had the idea of spring, of a new life coming, the, the symbolizing the resurrection. It was there in many ways. When he met the young people on Monday, he said to them, he said, uh, your presence here is a sign of the resurrection after the pandemic. And then, of course, he switched to the war and he said, uh, but many of your peers, your young people, your own age in Ukraine, they are still waiting for the resurrection. That's right. And that transitions us right into talking about how Ukraine came up so many times during Holy Week in the Vatican. As we expected, Pope Francis appealed for peace all throughout his preaching during Triduum and Easter. And there were a lot of messages, so I don't think that we're able to go through all of them. We'll link to our coverage in the show notes. But I wanted to just take some time to talk about the main things that stuck out to us. So do you want to go first? Yeah, what was very striking about this year's Urbi at Orbi was that the main part of it was devoted to the war in the Ukraine. And Francis was very clear. He says, uh, may there be peace for war-torn Ukraine, so sorely tried by the violence and destruction of the cruel and senseless war into which it was dragged. So it's making very clear the Ukrainians didn't want the war. 
And he said, in this terrible night of suffering and death, may a new dawn of hope soon appear. Let there be a decision for peace. And then he went on to touch on the nuclear question. And he said, may the leaders of nations hear people's plea for peace. May they listen to that troubling question posed by scientists almost 70 years ago. This was in 1955, 10 years after the first atomic bomb was exploded in Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. And that question, which was in a manifesto by the British philosopher, mathematician, Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein, the famous scientist, they put the question, shall we put an end to the human race or shall mankind renounce war? This struck me very much that the Pope in his Urbi et Orbi message to the world on Easter Sunday, raised this. And it's interested in Russell and uh, Einstein's manifesto. They say, after that sentence, they say, well, we're not really going to get rid of war, are we? Which means that the path we've chosen is is putting an end to the human race, right? Yeah, well, we're, we're walking on ice. That connects to what I was going to say stood out to me from the Pope's address. Obviously, these these peace messages have been really powerful. I was uh, really struck by when the Pope said in the Urbi et Orbi that we've come out of the pandemic, although not all the way, but that we've come out of the pandemic still having the spirit of Cain, he says, the spirit of Cain who saw Abel not as a brother, but as a rival and thought about how to eliminate him. And I was just thinking back to all of our coverage. We you and I did this podcast all the way through the pandemic. And we talked constantly about how the Pope was, you know, forever hitting on this message of we can come out of the pandemic either better than we were or worse than we were before, but we're never going back to what it was before. And he was really pushing us to come out on the better side. Uh, but here he's saying, that's not where we've come out. We've come out still having the spirit of Cain. And he said, you know, it, to me, this really underlines that he he sees how dark of a time that we're in right now and how much we need Jesus' message of reconciliation. Yes, he's saying that Jesus is the only one that can really talk about peace. Because if if you look at it, at least from here in Europe, it's a question you're either for Ukraine or you're against Ukraine. It's as simple as that. And the Vatican actually ran up against that this week when some high-profile Ukrainians were saying that reconciliation can't come until Russia stopped its aggression. I'm thinking specifically of when the Vatican decided to have a Russian woman and a Ukrainian woman, who were already friends, present the 13th Station of the Cross at the Colosseum together. This is the station Jesus has taken down from the cross. Originally, the text of the reflection was asking things like, why has God forsaken our peoples? And then it spoke about reconciliation, and it said, how difficult it will be to reconcile ourselves to all of this. Lord, where are you? Speak to us amid the silence of death and division, and teach us to be peacemakers, brothers and sisters, and to rebuild what bombs tried to destroy. And yet, the new Ukrainian ambassador to the Holy See and the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church both raised concerns to the Vatican that the reflection was, in the archbishop's words, incoherent and even offensive considering Russia's aggression. And that bishop said that reconciliation is only possible after the war is over. I was just so surprised at, at how much of a reaction this had, and the Vatican ended up changing the words of the reflection. Yes, they, they in fact opted for silence, basically. 
Yeah, literally, the reflection is is about silence. It says, in the face of death, silence is more eloquent than words. Let us therefore pause in prayerful silence and let each one in our hearts pray for peace in the world. You remember several times Francis said, when, when I'm faced with young children who've got diseases that they're going to die, or the death of babies, he says, you know, the, what can you say to the parents? Mm-hmm. You remain in silence with them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it it substantially came off by opting for this silence. But it it as you said, Colin, it did create a lot of negative, negative reaction. They said, How can you have there the representative of a nation which is trying to kill our people? Jerry, the Pope also revealed during the Easter vigil that a group of Ukrainian parliamentarians and the mayor of this occupied city, Melitopol, were present at the Easter vigil. And then the day after that, the ambassador from Ukraine to the Holy See, Andrei Yurash, revealed that those parliamentarians had met with the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Perlin, on Holy Saturday and that they expressed appreciation for the Station of the Cross being changed. So to me, this is just one example of the diplomatic tightrope that the Vatican is trying to walk here, delivering a message of peace while also keeping a good relationship with Ukraine and, if possible, with Russia. We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll dig deeper into that diplomatic challenge for the Vatican, and we'll talk about my interview with former U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See, Ken Hackett. Stay with us. Is the Spirit moving within you, leading you to discover your unique mission in the world? At the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, you will engage wholeheartedly in your faith journey and discover your unique role in caring for our world and the Catholic Church with rigorous master's programs led by world-class scholars. FST offers courses and lectures that dive deep into the heart of Franciscan spirituality, theology, and social thought integrating the Catholic faith and the Franciscan vision of civic life and church leadership. Learn to put theology to work in the world at FST. Visit fst.edu for more information and to start your application today. Two weeks ago, I interviewed former U.S. ambassador to the Holy See, Ken Hackett, because there's been all this talk lately about Pope Francis possibly visiting Ukraine. And I kind of found it surprising that the Pope wants to do this. It seems like he wants to keep a good relationship with the Russians and with the Russian Orthodox because he has these ecumenical efforts. Um, And so I wanted to ask somebody who, who is really familiar with Holy See diplomacy, you know, what what relationships are at play here and what the Pope's kind of considerations around this this possible trip might be. So I want to kind of explain this for our listeners as we recap the interview. And I think the first thing we need to do here is is introduce the key players. So Jerry, do you want to start us off with maybe the key governmental players here? Well, the key governmental players obviously are President Putin, whom Pope Francis has met three times and has spoken a few times on the phone with. President Zelensky, whom the Pope has uh, met once, and he has spoken at least twice on the phone with. And then on the religious side, you have in Moscow, you have Patriarch Kirill, who has come out strongly in favor of the Russian 
what they call special operation, which everybody else calls invasion, cruel war, aggression, and who has now come under really very heavy criticism from most of the church leaders around the world and whose meeting with Pope Francis, which was supposed to happen in June, July, really now seems seriously in doubt. Many people here think this cannot happen while the war is going on. So we should say that, you know, Francis has a sort of good dialoguing relationship with Zelensky. Zelensky really wants him to come visit. So do a couple of the other big Ukrainian government folks. We've seen the mayor of Kiev and the new Ukrainian ambassador to the Holy See, Andrei Yurash, both invite the Pope and they said that they want the Pope to help mediate in the conflict. That relationship is not so much one of dialogue between the Pope and Vladimir Putin or Patriarch Kirill, despite being actually the first Pope to meet with a Russian Orthodox Patriarch in a thousand years. Yes, I, I think uh, the, from the Ukrainian side, mm -hmm. uh, the church leaders also would like the Pope to come, the, the head of the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine and the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox, which has more or less separated from Moscow. Yeah, because the Ukrainian Orthodox Church was under the Patriarchate of Moscow. But as Moscow has become a more and more nationalistic church and sort of in reaction, so has the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, these two have begun to separate. And that's the religious rift that's sort of underlying in part this conflict. In terms of the actors, you mm -hmm. have the political actors, mm -hmm. which we've listed. We have the religious actors. And then you, you have the, the Vatican. The Vatican has its embassy, they call it nunciature, in Kiev, which has never left. Practically all the other embassies of the world left Kiev when the bombing started. The Vatican's nuncio remained there because he was the presence of the Pope. Wow. Several other embassies are now going back. Uh, I think mm -hmm. 16 or 17 have returned. The Vatican works at two levels, if you wish. The church in the given countries and the Vatican, which tends also to have a, another level which works at the diplomatic level and relates with the ambassadors of the different countries, reports back to the Pope, tries to communicate the Pope's message. This is very important. And then Francis, of course, has telephoning to these people. And he's looking for whatever way he can to stop this war. But the Pope has been trying to keep a good relationship with all of these different constituencies. And in my interview with the former U.S. ambassador to the Holy See, who was our ambassador under Obama, he said that the Pope hasn't really been getting anywhere with his dialogue with Russia or with Patriarch Kirill. And so his approach to them has been changing. So I was wondering if you could walk us through some of the unprecedented changes that we've seen in the way that the Pope is relating to Russia. First of all, the first day after the war started, he went to the Russian embassy, spoke to the ambassador there, who is not only the ambassador of Russia, but also the personal representative of the president of Russia to the Holy See. He's talking to the man who's representing President Putin. And the message, as we now understand, was, first of all, stop the fighting, a ceasefire. And secondly, care for those who are becoming refugees. Humanitarian corridors, the need for humanitarian corridors, he insisted on. 
Yeah. And, and Ambassador Hackett was really, he, he was expressing with me how surprised he was when he found out about this. He said that it was around the time, right when this was all beginning, that everyone was asking, isn't the Pope going to say something? Is the Pope going to call out Russia? And he said, well, they've, they've never done that. They don't, they don't take that approach to diplomacy, naming and shaming. But he said, then the Pope went to the Russian embassy to make this personal request, and he was just shocked because this is so unprecedented for, for a Pope to walk in. Yeah. Yes, it's breaking with protocol. It's absolutely. I, I haven't heard from anybody here of a known precedent for such an action. So it, it was a very strong action by the Pope. He even went, in a way, totally disarmed. He didn't bring a Vatican official to accompany him. He went by himself, and he trusted their translators to translate. The other big action that stuck out in recent weeks is the Pope holding up the Ukrainian flag. I don't know if you have a sense of whether that's precedented. That is a quite extraordinary also. From the beginning, we've seen this pontificate. It expresses itself in actions and then in words. And frequently, the actions anticipate the words. Right, in gestures. And Francis has left no doubt now mm -hmm that he considers this a senseless, cruel, unjustified war, and that, that Ukraine is the victim because it has been dragged into this war. is It's very interesting because he is coming out denouncing the violation of human rights in Bucha at a time when Russia is saying this doesn't happen. Russia doesn't call it a war. They call it a special operation. Francis says this is war. Mm -hmm. in, in language, he has contradicted publicly many of the statements made by Russia. That kind of brings me to my bigger question here, which is, you know, if the Pope and Russia can't even agree on what the facts are here, I wonder if his gestures towards Ukraine, holding up the flag, speaking out against the war, visiting the Russian embassy, and possibly visiting Kiev, like he's talked about wanting to do, if that has a risk of further alienating Russia, like, there's there's one question about whether the Pope can even have an effect here. The other is, will what he does make things worse? If Russia, what Ken Hackett, Ambassador Hackett, whom I know quite well, a uh, very fine ambassador, when he says, doesn't seem to be having any impact on Russia, but certainly hasn't, doesn't seem to have had an impact on President Putin because there's no ceasefire, no humanitarian corridors, there's no real willingness to dialogue. Patriarch Kirill has also not used the word war. He doesn't speak about invasion, and he, he seems to be going in another direction to the Pope. And Francis has always made very clear that the pastors, the bishops, they are not servants of the state. They are meant to be servants of God, servants of the people. And yeah, we see what happens. Ambassador Hackett also said, in terms of negative consequences, he doesn't think it would really have many, which surprised me. He said he thinks that Putin doesn't really care what the Pope thinks or says about him. He raised as an example the fact that Putin showed up 45 minutes late for a meeting with the Pope. And he said, you know, you don't show up that late on the Pope if you, if you care what he thinks. And then he said that if Patriarch Kirill were to criticize a papal trip to Ukraine, for example, that the criticism wouldn't get that far in the rest of the world. It would only reach the people that Kirill has influence over in like rural Russia. Well, Kirill has a certain influence in Russia, but there's a lot of question, of course, is how information is controlled. I think Francis is willing 
and he would go to Kiev if he thinks it can help in some way. I think the question is a security question and whether Moscow would facilitate him, it's it's not at all clear. If Russia isn't listening, does the Pope delivering this peace message matter? I guess to phrase it more positively, like, what is the best possible outcome for the Vatican here? Well, look, when on Palm Sunday, the Pope called for an Easter truce from the Catholic Easter on the 17th to next Sunday's Easter for the Orthodox, the foreign minister of Russia, Lavrov, said there will be no stop in the fighting until we reach our goals. Well, if that isn't a no, I don't know what is. I wonder if, if you could say anything, though, about like what the Vatican's hope is. If, if all goes well for them, what does that look like? Francis, first of all, puts his faith in the power of prayer. He believes God is the Lord of history. And he believes at the end of the day that that is what is decisive. And hence his continual plead to believers worldwide to pray for peace in the Ukraine, to pray for an end of the war, and to pray for those who are suffering. This is Francis's approach. And if we forget that and reduce him to a diplomatic actor, we really misinterpret him badly. Yeah. That's one thing that I appreciate about what we're able to do in our conversations on this show is that, you know, because we're coming from a Catholic publication, a Catholic angle, we're able to consider the spiritual side of things, too. Anyway, all that to say, I appreciate getting to do this show with you, Jerry. And thanks for talking to me this week. Thank you, Colleen. And let's hope that the situation begins to at least improve. All the predictions are that it's going to get worse, not better. So more prayer is needed. Absolutely. All right, Jay, we'll be praying for peace together. Thank you. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Ricardo De Silva and Maggie Van Dorn. Production assistance from Kira Hanlon at America Media and Robert Balasser at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Audio engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's Inside Without the Second I, Vatican Pod. Please consider supporting our work on Inside the Vatican by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. Check out the new series of the Ave Explorers podcast, The Mass, where host Katie Prejean McGrady and special guests examine the origin and parts of the sacred liturgy, why it's important for Catholics to attend Mass each week, and how to better prepare for it. Subscribe to Ave Explorers, The Mass, on your favorite podcast app, or sign up for all of the free content in the series at AveMariaPress.com, or by following Ave Maria Press on social media.